<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth and justice, believers in peace, freedom and the American way. And greetings to folks who joined us this morning on C-SPAN. I spent 45 minutes there on C-SPAN with John. Uh, I'm forgetting his last name. Great host. Great show. Today, the January 6th committee is going to be uh, doing a deep dive into, uh, apparently, Cassidy Hutchins, the aide to Mark Meadows. And she is the person who has already shared with us a number of things, who has you know, laid out for us how Mark Meadows was burning documents in his office right after he had a meeting with Congressman Scott Perry, the, the Republican from Pennsylvania. She's the one who told us that Mark Meadows said that Donald Trump said that maybe hanging Mike Pence was the right thing to do, that he deserved to be hanged. She's the one who told us that Pat Cipollone, the White House counsel, the lawyer for the White House, explicitly told Donald Trump that his uh, fake elector plan was uh, a crime and Trump went ahead with it anyway. She's the one who, who told us that Donald Trump was fully intending to invoke martial law until his, his lawyers, the entire office of the, uh, of, the, of the White House counsel, threatened to resign if he did. I mean, you know, she was there. She was the number two to Mark Meadows. And, and, and I think, frankly, we're now figuring out why Mark Meadows is um, refusing to testify. <laughs> I mean, this is terrible stuff. I, and it's been suggested that today she's going to testify that not only was Mark Meadows burning papers in his office in the White House, but that Donald Trump was tearing papers up into little pieces and flushing them down the toilet. You recall that the White House toilet did get clogged up and they had to call a plumber. And it was because of all the paper that Trump had flushed down it. What the hell were these people hiding? Obviously, treason, a plan to overthrow the United States of America and turn us over to Putin. I mean, Trump had been trying for four years to turn us over to Putin, but this looks like this was the, uh, the high point of the whole thing. Anyhow, picking up your phone calls here. Tyrone in Harlem, New York. Hey, Tyrone, what's up? Thanks for taking my call. Sure. And I want to say I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed your appearance on C-SPAN this morning. Oh, you, thank you. You was, take, you was taking no prisoners. Thank you. They were trying to come around uh, your your ideas and how you, you but you, you you have your receipts. 
So it, it wasn't working on you. And I thoroughly enjoy it. And we got to try to get through to these people that are thinking that if this country falls apart, they're going to be okay. Everything's going to be all right. No. No. Most of the political stuff that we benefit from, our air. I think there's a bigger thing going on here, Tyrone. And that is that uh, all across America, for over the last 40 years, what has happened, you know, 40 years ago, pretty much everybody, and I, I realized that there were, uh, you know, racial and regional differences here. But generally speaking, people could get good union jobs, they could get a good government job, they could, you know, that, that you knew as a parent that your kids were going to do better than you, and you knew that you were going to do better than your parents. That has not been the case for 20 years as a result of the Reagan revolution. So you've got a whole bunch of pissed off people. We've gone from 60% of America being the middle class to 45%, 46% of America being the middle class. And so you've got a whole lot of really pissed off people who know that they've gotten poorer. They understand deep down inside that $50 trillion has been transferred out of the wealth of the middle class into the pockets of the top 1%. They may not know it in exactly those terms, but that's the actual amount. They know that they've been wow. robbed. They know that life isn't what it used to be. They know that their kids aren't going to do better. And so they're really pissed off. And then the Republicans come along and say, you know who's doing this to you? It's women oh, in the yes. workplace. It's black people who want your jobs. It's yeah. immigrants who are coming into this country and, and taking your jobs and bringing drugs and disease and as if to say, oh, but, you know, just ignore that man behind the curtain, that billionaire over there who's just, you know, who's paying 3% income tax and ripping us all off. Could you help me understand why the White House is not joining forces with this poor people's campaign, the William Barbers? Why, why aren't they putting more effort into bringing these people into the limelight of what happens? Because the people that work these Departments and uh, and all these all these businesses are the ones that make the businesses operate. Yeah. And you got people that are poor, that are working poor, that is part of this poor people campaign. And the White House administration don't seem to be want to be bothered with them at all. I don't understand that. Well, I. I'd have to, that's a good question to put to Reverend Barber, because I don't know if he's been disrespected by the White House or if he's been embraced by the White House. I, I, I frankly, uh, I just don't know. Well, you know, I've been hearing Roland Martin talk about it. It's like, yo, what's wrong with that? They're not, because I haven't seen any right. White House foot. Well, Reverend Barber is going to be on this program, so uh, okay. you know we'll, we'll check in with him on that. Tyrone, i got to move along. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for the call. Right. Thanks for your kind words. Always nice to hear All from right, you. Thank you. Yeah. Joni in Red Bluff, California. Hey, Joni, what's up? Hi, Tom. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. I wanted to talk about expanding the Supreme Court because I don't understand why, especially Pelosi and the you know, what's happening with Roe v. Wade, why would Pelosi, like, even hesitate to take that suggestion to the House? I think there is a fear among many of your older Democrats who still remember a time when there were rational Republicans. There is a fear among some of these older Democrats that the Republicans will seek revenge. And frankly, I don't give a rat's ass. I don't care. I fully expect they're constantly seeking revenge anyway, even for things we haven't done. So, you know, put, yeah. on, put on your big well, boy pants and let's get this thing moving. Well, not only that, this is like their one saving grace 
is expanding to keep the house and, you know, to move forward. So anyway, I really appreciate it. I'm getting ready to watch the hearings. And uh, thank you so much. Me too. We will be carrying them live right here on this program, by the way. So, Joni, thanks so much for the call. We are all looking forward to these hearings. It's uh, You know, what possibly could cause these people to say, okay, we're going to blow up our 4th of July weekend. Most of Congress is already home right now, right? It's the 4th of July weekend for Congress. They're going to blow all this up. It's got to be something really important. I'm looking forward to it. Stick around. Ms. Hutchinson, you also described a brief meeting between Mr. Ornato and Mr. Meadows on the potential for violence. The meeting was on January 4th. They were talking about the potential for violence on January 6th. Let's listen to a clip of that testimony. I remember Mr. Ornato had talked to him about intelligence reports. I remember Mr. Ornato coming in and saying that we had intel reports saying that there could potentially be violence on the, on the 6th. You also told us about reports of violence and weapons that the Secret Service were receiving on the night of January 5th and throughout the day on January 6th. Is that correct? That's correct. There are reports that police in Washington, D.C. had arrested several people with firearms or ammunition following a separate pro-Trump rally in Freedom Plaza on the evening of January 5th. Are those some of the reports that you recall hearing about? They are. Of course, the world now knows that the people who attacked the Capitol on January 6th had many different types of weapons. When a president speaks, the Secret Service typically requires those attending to pass through metal detectors, known as magnetometers, or MAGs for short. The Select Committee has learned that people who willingly entered the enclosed area for President Trump's speech were screened so they could attend the rally at the Ellipse. They had weapons and other items that were confiscated, pepper spray, knives, brass knuckles, tasers, body armor, gas masks, batons, blunt weapons. And those were just from the people who chose to go through the security for the president's event on the ellipse, not the several thousand members of the crowd who refused to go through the mags and watched from the lawn near the Washington Monument. The Select Committee has learned about reports from outside the magnetometers and has obtained police radio transmissions identifying individuals with firearms, including AR-15s, near the ellipse on the morning of January 6th. Let's listen. There's an individual who's in a tree, maybe a white male, about six feet tall, thin build, brown cowboy boots. He's got blue jeans and a blue jean jacket, and underneath the blue jean jacket, the complainants both saw a stock of an AR-15. He's gonna be with a group of individuals, about five to eight, five to uh, eight other individuals. Two of the individuals in that group at the base of the tree, near the porta potties, were wearing green fatigues, green olive draft style fatigues, about five, eight, five, nine, skinny, uh, skinny white males, brown cowboy boots, they had Glock-style pistols in their waistband. 8736 with the message that subject, um, weapon on his right hip. After that, he's in the tree. Motor 1, make sure PPD knows they have an elevated threat in the tree south side of Constitution Avenue. Look for the don't tread on me flag, American flag face mask, cowboy boots, weapon on the right, right side hip. I got three men walking down the street in fatigue, carrying AR-15s. Copy at 14th for Independence. 
listening to the Tom Hartman program. Call 202. AR-15s at 14th and Independence. As you saw in those emails, the first report that we showed, we now know was sent in the 8 o'clock hour on January 6th. This talked about people in the crowd wearing ballistic helmets and body armor, carrying radio equipment and military-grade backpacks. The second report we showed you on the screen was sent by the Secret Service in the 11 a.m. hour, and it addressed reports of a man with a rifle near the ellipse. Ms. Hutchinson, in prior testimony, you described for us a meeting in the White House around 10 a.m. in the morning of January 6th involving Chief of Staff Meadows and Tony Ornato. Were you in that meeting? I was. Let's listen to your testimony about that meeting, and then we'll have some questions. I think the last time we talked, you mentioned that um, some of the weapons that people had at the rally included five poles, oversized um, sticks or flagpoles, um, bear spray. Is there anything else that you recall hearing about that um, the people who would gather on the ellipse had? I recall Tony and I having a conversation with Mark probably around 10 a.m., 10, 15 a.m., where I remember Tony mentioning knives, guns in the form of pistols and rifles, um, bear spray, body armor, spears, and flagpoles. Spears were one item, flagpoles were one item, and then Tony had relayed to me something to the effect of, and these effing people are fastening spears onto the ends of flagpoles. And Ms. Hutchinson, here's a clip of your testimony regarding Mr. Meadows' response to learning that the rally attendees were armed that day. What was Mark's reaction, Mr. Meadows' reaction, to this list of weapons that people had in the crowd? When Tony and I went in to talk to Mark that morning, Mark was sitting on his couch and on his phone, which was something typical. And I remember Tony just got right into it. I was like, sorry, I just want to let you know, and informed him, like, this is how many people we have outside the mags right now. These are the weapons that we're known to have. It's possible he listed more weapons off that I just don't recall. Um, and gave him a brief but and concise explanation, but also fairly, fairly thorough. And I remember distinctly Mark not looking up from his phone. And I, I remember Tony finishing his explanation and it taking a few seconds for Mark to say something to the point where I almost said, Mark, did you hear him? Um, and then Mark chimed in and was like, all right, anything else? Still looking down at his phone. And Tony looked at me and I looked at Tony and he, Tony said, no, sir, do you have any questions? He's like, what are you hearing? And I looked at Tony and I was like, sir, he just told you about what was happening down at the rallies. And he was like, yeah, yeah, I know. And then he looked up and said, have you talked to the president? And Tony said, yes, sir, he's aware too. He said, all right, good. He asked Tony if Tony had informed the president. Yes. And Tony said, yes, he had. So Ms. Hutchinson, is it your understanding that Mr. Ornato told the president about weapons at the rally on the morning of January 6th? That's what Mr. Ornato relayed to me. And here's how you characterize Mr. Meadows' general response when people raised concerns about what could happen on January 6th. So at the time, in the days leading up to the 6th, there were lots of public reports about how things might go bad. 
on the 6th, even the potential for violence. If I'm hearing you correctly, what stands out to you is that Mr. Meadows did not share those concerns, or at least did not act on those concerns? Did not act on those concerns would be accurate. But other people raised them to, to him? Like in this exchange, you mentioned that Mr. Arnado pulled him aside. That's correct. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com Hartman, with two N's, or enter the code Hartman, the two N's, before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman, the two N's, or enter the code Hartman, the two N's, before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Ms. Hutchinson, we're going to show now an exchange of texts between you and Deputy Chief of Staff Ornato. Um, and these text messages uh, were uh, exchanged while you were at the ellipse. Um, in one text, uh, you write, but the crowd looks good from this vantage point as long as we get the shot. He was effing furious. And the text messages also stress that President Trump kept mentioning the OTR, an off-the-record movement. We're going to come back and ask you about that in a minute. But could you tell us, first of all, who it is in the text who was furious? The he in that text that I was referring to was the president. And uh, why was he furious, Ms. Hutchinson? He was furious because he wanted the arena that we had on the ellipse to be maxed out at capacity for uh, all attendees. The advance team had relayed to him that the mags were free-flowing. Everybody who wanted to come in had already come in, but he still was angry about the extra space and wanted more people to come in. And did you go to the rally in the presidential motorcade? I, I was there, yes, in the motorcade. And were you backstage uh, with the president and other members of his staff and family? I was. And you told us, Ms. Hutchinson, about particular comments that you heard while you were in the tent area. 
When we were in the offstage announce area tent behind the stage, he was very concerned about the shot, meaning the photograph that we would get because the rally space wasn't full. Um, one of the reasons, which I previously stated, was because he wanted it to be full and for people to not feel excluded because they'd come far to watch him at the rally. Um, and he felt the mags were at fault for not letting everybody in. But another leading reason, and likely the primary reason, is because he wanted it full and he was angry that we weren't letting people through the mags with weapons, what the Secret Service deemed as weapons and our, our weapons. <laughs> but when we were in the offstage announced tent, I was part of a conversation. I was in the I was in the vicinity of a conversation where I overheard the president say something to the effect of, you know, I, I don't effing care that they have weapons. They're not here to hurt me. Take the effing mags away. Let my people in. They can march to the Capitol from here. Let the people in. Take the effing mags away. Just to be clear, Ms. Hutchinson, is it your understanding that the president wanted to take the mags away and said that the armed individuals were not there to hurt him? That's a fair assessment. The issue wasn't with the amount of space available in the official rally area uh, only, but instead that people did not want to have to go through the mags. Let's listen to a portion of what you told us about that. In this particular instance, it wasn't the capacity of our space, it was the mags and the people that didn't want to come through, and that's what Tony had been trying to relay to him that morning. You know, it's not the issues that we encountered on the campaign. We have enough space, sir. They don't want to come in right now. They they have weapons that they don't want confiscated by the Secret Service, and they're fine on the mall. They can see you on the mall, and they're, they want to march straight to the Capitol from the mall. The president apparently wanted all attendees inside the official rally space and repeatedly said, quote, they're not here to hurt me. And, and just to, to be clear, so um, he was told again in, in that conversation, or was he told again in that conversation that people couldn't come through the mags because they had weapons? Correct. And um, that people, and he, his response was to say they can march to the Capitol from, in, from the ellipse. Something to the effect of take the effing mags away, they're not here to hurt me, let them in, let my people in. They can march to the Capitol after the rally's over. They can march from they can march from the ellipse. Take the effing mags away. Then they can march to the Capitol. Ms. Hutchinson, what we saw when those clips were playing were photos provided by the National Archives showing the president in the offstage tent before his speech on the ellipse. You were in some of those photos as well. And uh, I just want to confirm that that is when you heard the president say the people with weapons weren't there to hurt him and that he wanted the Secret Service to remove the magnetometers. That's correct. In the photos that you displayed, we were standing towards the front of the tent with the TVs really close to where he would walk out to go onto the stage. These conversations happened two to three minutes before he took the stage that morning. Let's reflect on that for a moment. President Trump was aware that a number of the individuals in the crowd had weapons and were wearing body armor. And here's what President Trump instructed the crowd to do. We're going to walk down and I'll be there with you. We're going to walk down. We're going to walk down anyone you want, but I think right here we're going to walk down to the Capitol. 
And the crowd, as we know, did proceed to the Capitol. It soon became apparent to the Secret Service, including the Secret Service teams in the crowd, along with White House staff, that security at the Capitol would not be sufficient. I had two or three phone conversations with Mr. Renato when we were at the Ellipse, and then I had four men on Mr. Meadows' detail with me in between those individuals and then a few other bodies on the ground, just the Secret Service doing advance. They were getting notifications through their radios, and Mr. Ordano in one phone conversation had called me and said, make sure the chief knows that they're, they're getting close to the Capitol. It's um, they're having trouble stacking bodies. And Ms. Hutchinson, when you, you said they were having trouble stacking bodies, did you mean that law enforcement at the Capitol uh, needed more people to defend the Capitol from the rioters? It was becoming clear to us and to the Secret Service that Capitol Police officers were getting overrun at the security barricades outside of the Capitol building, and they were having short, they were short people to defend the building against the rioters. And uh, you mentioned that Mr. Ornato was conveying this to you because he wanted you to tell Mr. Meadows. Uh, so did you, did you tell Mr. Meadows uh, that people were getting closer to the Capitol and that Capitol Police was having difficulty? After I had the conversation with Mr. Meadows, Mr. after I had the conversation with Mr. Ornato, I went to have the discussion with Mr. Meadows. He was in a secure vehicle at the time making a call. So when I had gone over to the car, I went to open the door to let him know and he had immediately shut it. I don't know who he was speaking with. Um, it wasn't something that he regularly did, especially when I would go over to give him information. So I was a bit taken aback, but I didn't think much of it, and thinking that I was, would be able to have the conversation with him a few moments later. And were you able to have that conversation a few moments later? Probably about 20 to 25 minutes later. There was another period in between where he shut the door again, um, and then when he finally got out of the vehicle, we had the conversation. But at that point, there was a backlog of information that he should have been made aware of. And so you opened the door to the control car and Mr. Meadows pulled it shut? That's correct. And he did that two times? That's correct. And when you finally were able to give Mr. Meadows the information um, about the violence at the Capitol, what was his reaction? He almost had a lack of reaction. I remember him saying, all right, something to the effect of how much longer is, does the president have left in his speech? Again, much of this information about the potential for violence um, was known or learned before the onset of the violence, early enough for President Trump to take steps to prevent it. He could, for example, have urged the crowd at the Ellipse not to march to the Capitol. He could have condemned the violence immediately once it began, or he could have taken multiple other steps. But as we will see today and in later hearings, President Trump had something else in mind. One other question at this point, Ms. Hutchinson. Were you aware of concerns that White House counsel Pat Cipollone or Eric Hirschman had about the language President Trump used in his ellipse speech? There were many discussions the morning of the 6th about the rhetoric of the speech that day. In my conversations with Mr. Hirschman, he had relayed that we would be 
foolish to include language that had been included at the president's request, which had lines along to the effect of fight for Trump, we're going to march the Capitol, I'll be there with you, fight for me, fight for what we're doing, fight for the movement, things about the vice president at the time too. Both Mr. Hirschman and White House Counsel's Office were urging the speechwriters to not include that language for legal concerns and also for the op optics of what it could portray the president wanting to do that day. And we just heard the president say that he would be with his supporters as they marched to the Capitol. Even though uh, he did not end up going, he certainly wanted to. Um, some have questioned whether President Trump genuinely planned to come here to the Capitol on January 6th. In his book, Mark Meadows falsely wrote that after President Trump gave his speech on January 6th, he told Mr. Meadows that he was, quote, speaking, meta speaking metaphorically about the walk to the Capitol. As you will see, Donald Trump was not speaking metaphorically. As we heard earlier, Rudy Giuliani told Ms. Hutchinson that Mr. Trump plans to travel to the Capitol on January 6th. I want to pause for just a moment uh, to ask you, Ms. Hutchinson, to explain some of the terminology you will hear today. We've heard you use two different terms to describe plans for the president's movement to the Capitol or anywhere else. One of those is a scheduled movement, and another one is OTR. Could you describe for us what each of those mean? A scheduled presidential movement is on his official schedule. It's notified to the press and to a wide range of staff that will be traveling with him. It's known to the public, known to the Secret Service, and they're able to coordinate the movement days in advance. An off-the-record movement is confined to the knowledge of a very, very small group of advisors and staff. Typically, a very small group of staff would travel with him, mostly that are just included in the national security package. You can pull an off-the-record off movement together in less than an hour. Um, it's a way to kind of circumvent having to release it to the press, if that's the goal of it, or to not have to have as many security parameters put in place ahead of time to make the movement happen. Thank you. And let's turn back now to the president's plans to travel to the Capitol on January 6th. We know that White House counsel Pat Cipollone was concerned about the legal implications of such a trip. And he agreed with the Secret Service that it shouldn't happen. Ms. Hutchinson, did you have any conversations with Pat Cipollone about his concerns about the president going to the Capitol on January 6th? On January 3rd, Mr. Cipollone had approached me knowing that Mark had raised the prospect of going up to the Capitol on January 6th. Mr. Cipollone and I had a brief private conversation where he said to me, we need to make sure that this doesn't happen. This would be a legally a, a terrible idea for us. We're, we have serious legal concerns if we go up to the Capitol that day. And he then urged me to continue relaying that to Mr. Meadows because it's my understanding that Mr. Cipollone thought that Mr. Meadows was indeed pushing this along with the president. And we understand, Ms. Hutchinson, that you also spoke to Mr. Cipollone on the morning of the 6th as you were about to go to the rally on the ellipse. And Mr. Cipollone said something to you like, make sure the movement to the Capitol 
does not happen. Is that correct? That's correct. I saw Mr. Cipollone right before I walked out onto West Exec that morning, and Mr. Cipollone said something to the effect of, please make sure we don't go up to the Capitol, Cassidy. Keep in touch with me. We're going to get charged with every crime imaginable if we make that movement happen. And do you remember which crimes Mr. Cipollone was concerned with? In the days leading up to the six, we had conversations about potentially obstructing justice or defrauding the electoral count. Let's hear uh, about some of those concerns uh, that you mentioned earlier uh, in one of your interviews with us. Having a private conversation with Pat late in the afternoon of the 3rd or the 4th, um, that Pat was concerned it would look like we were obstructing justice or obstructing the electoral college count. And I, I apologize for probably not being um, <laughs> very firm with my legal terms here, but that it would look like we were obstructing what was happening on Capitol Hill. And he was also worried that it would look like we were inciting a riot or encouraging a riot to erupt on the Capitol, at the Capitol. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. In fact, in the days before January 6th, and on January 6th itself, President Trump expressed to multiple White House aides that he wanted to go to the Capitol after his speech. Here's what various White House aides have told the committee about the President's desire to go to the Capitol. Did the President tell you this, that he wanted to speak at the Capitol? Correct, yes. During the meeting in the dining room, did the, the idea of the President um, proceeding or walking to the Capitol on the 6th after his speech come up? Walking to the Capitol? No. Driving to the Capitol? It came up. 
Okay, how did it come up and what was discussed? You brought it up. You said, I want to go down to the Capitol. What about him marching to the Capitol on the 6th? Um, yes. Tell us about that. So it's kind of a general thing. I mean, to get into the specifics of it, I, I was aware of a desire of the president to potentially uh, march to the uh, or, or accompany the um, rally attendees to the Capitol. When did you first hear about this idea of the president accompanying rally attendees to the Capitol on the 6th? Well, this was at the 6th. This was during the, um, after he finished his remarks. When the president said that he would be going to the Capitol during his speech on the ellipse, the Secret Service scrambled to find a way for him to go. We know this from witnesses and the Secret Service, also from messages among staff on the president's National Security Council. The NSC staff were monitoring the situation in real time, and you can see how the situation evolved in the following chat log that the committee has obtained. As you can see, NSC staff believed that Mogul, the president, was, quote, going to the Capitol, and, quote, they are finding the best route now. From these chats, we also know the staff learned of the attack on the Capitol in real time. When President Trump left the ellipse stage at 1.10, the staff knew that rioters had invaded the inaugural stage and Capitol Police were calling for all available officers to respond. When Republican leader Kevin McCarthy heard the President say he was going to the Capitol, he called you, Ms. Hutchinson. Isn't that right? That's correct. And in this text message, you told Tony Ornato, quote, McCarthy just called me too. And do you guys think you're coming to my office? Tell us about the call that day with Leader McCarthy during the president's speech on the ellipse. I was still in the tent behind the stage. And when you're behind the stage, you, you can't really hear what's going on in front of you. So when Mr. McCarthy called me with this information, I answered the call and he sounded rushed, but also frustrated and angry at me. And I was, I was confused because I, I didn't know what the president had just said. Um, he then explained, the president just said he's marching to the Capitol. You told me this whole week, you aren't coming up here. Why would you lie to me? I said, I'm, I'm not lying. I, I wasn't lying to you, sir. I, we're not going to the Capitol. And he said, well, he just said it on stage, Cassidy. Figure it out. Don't come up here. I said, I'll, I'll, I'll run the traps on this and I'll, I'll shoot you a text. I, I can assure you we're not coming up to the Capitol. We've already made that decision. He pressed a little bit more, believing me, but I think frustrated that the president had said that. And we ended the phone conversation after that. I called Mr. Renato to reconfirm that we weren't going to the Capitol, and which is also in our text messages. I sent Mr. McCarthy another text telling him the affirmative that we were not going up to the Capitol, and he didn't respond after that. And we understand, Ms. Hutchinson, that the plans for the president to come up to the Capitol um, had included discussions at some point about uh, what the president would do when he came up to the Capitol on January 6th. 
let's look at a clip of one of your interviews discussing that issue with the committee. When you were talking about a scheduled movement, did um, anyone say what the president wanted to do when he got here? No. Not that I can specifically remember. I remember, I remember hearing a few different ideas discussed with between the Mark and Scott Perry, Mark and Rudy Giuliani. I don't know which conversations were elevated to the president. I don't know what he personally wanted to do when he went up to the Capitol that day. Um, you know, I, I know that there were discussions about him having another speech outside of the Capitol before going in. I know that there was a conversation about him going into the House chamber at one point. As we've all just heard in the days leading up to January 6th, on the day of the speech, both before and during and after the rally speech, President Trump was pushing his staff to arrange for him to come up here to the Capitol during the electoral vote count. Let's turn now to what happened in the president's vehicle when the Secret Service told him he would not be going to the Capitol after his speech. First, here is the president's motorcade leaving the ellipse after his speech on January 6th. Ms. Hutchinson, when you returned to the White House in the motorcade after the president's speech, where did you go? When I returned to the White House, I walked upstairs towards the Chief of Staff's office, and I noticed Mr. Renato lingering outside of the office. And once we had made eye contact, he quickly waved me to go into his office, which was just across the hall from mine. When I went in, he shut the door, and I noticed Bobby Angle, who is the head of Mr. Trump's security detail, sitting in a chair, just looking somewhat discombobulated and a little lost. Um, and I, I looked at Tony, and he had said, did you effing hear what happened in the Beast? I said, no, Tony, I, I just got back. What happened? Tony proceeded to tell me that when the president got in the Beast, he was under the impression from Mr. Meadows that the off-the-record movement to the Capitol was still possible and likely to happen, but that Bobby had more information. So once the president had gotten into the vehicle with Bobby, he thought that they were going up to the Capitol, and when Bobby had relayed to him, we're not, we don't have the assets to do it, it's not secure, we're going back to the West Wing. The president had very strong, a very angry response to that. Um, Tony described him as being irate. The president said something to the effect of, I'm the effing president, take me up to the Capitol now. To which Bobby responded, sir, we have to go back to the West Wing. The president reached up towards the front of the vehicle to grab at the steering wheel. Mr. Engel grabbed his arm, said, sir, you need to take your hand off the steering wheel. We're going back to the West Wing. We're not going to the Capitol. Mr. Trump then used his free hand to lunge towards Bobby Engel. And Mr. when Mr. Renato had recounted this story to me, he had motioned towards his clavicles. And was Mr. Engel in the room as Mr. Renato told you this story? He was. Did Mr. Engel 
correct or disagree with any part of the story for Mr. Ornato? Mr. Engel did not correct or disagree with any part of the story. Did Mr. Engel or Mr. Ornato ever after that tell you that what Mr. Ornato had just said was untrue? Neither Mr. Ornato nor Mr. Engel told me ever that it was untrue. And despite this altercation, this physical altercation, uh, during the ride back to the White House, President Trump still demanded to go to the Capitol. Here's what Kaylee McEnany, the White House press secretary at the time, wrote in her personal notes and told the committee about President Trump's desire to go to the Capitol after returning to the White House. When you wrote, POTUS wanted to walk to the Capitol, was that based solely on what the president said during his speech or anything that he or anybody else said afterwards? So to the best of my recollection, I believe when we got back to the White House, he said he wanted to physically walk with the marchers. And according to my notes, he then said uh, he'd be fine with just riding the beast. But to the best of my recollection, he wanted to be a part of the march in some fashion. Okay, and just for the record, the beast refers to the presidential limousine? Yes. President Trump did not go to the Capitol that day. We understand that he blamed Mark Meadows for that. So prior to leaving the rally site, when he got off the stage and everybody was making the movement back to the motorcade, I had overheard Mr. Meadows say to him then, as I had prior to Mr. Trump taking the stage that morning, um, that he was still working on getting an off-the-record movement to the Capitol. So when Mr. Trump took the stage, he was under the impression via Mr. Meadows that it was still possible. So when he got off the stage, I had relayed to Mr. Meadows that I had another conversation with Tony. The movement was still not possible. Mr. Meadows said, okay. And then as they proceeded to go to the motorcade, um, and Mr. Meadows had reiterated, we're going to work on it, sir. Talk to Bobby. Bobby has more information. Mark got into his vehicle, to my understanding. Trump got into the beast. And after we had all arrived back at the White House, later in the day, it had been relayed to me via Mark that the president wasn't happy, that Bobby didn't pull it off for him, and that Mark didn't work hard enough to get the movement on the books. The physical altercation that Ms. Hutchinson described in the presidential vehicle was not the first time that the president had become very angry about issues relating to the election. On December 1, 2020, Attorney General Barr said in an interview that the Department of Justice had not found evidence of widespread election fraud sufficient to change the outcome of the election. Ms. Hutchinson, how did the president react to hearing that news? Around the time that I understand the AP article went live, I remember hearing noise coming from down the hallway, so I poked my head out of the office. And I saw the valet walking towards our office. He had said, get the chief down to the dining room. The president wants him. So Mark went down to the dining room and came back to the office a few minutes later. After Mark had returned, I left the office and went down to the dining room and I noticed that the door was propped open and the valet was inside the dining room changing the tablecloth off of the dining room table. He motioned for me to come in. 
and then pointed towards the front of the room near the fireplace mantle and the TV where I first noticed there was ketchup dripping down the wall and there's a shattered porcelain plate on the floor. The valet had articulated that the president was extremely angry at the attorney general's AP interview and had thrown his lunch against the wall, um, which was causing them to have to clean up. So I, I grabbed a towel and started wiping the ketchup off of the wall to help the valet out. Um, and he said something to the effect of, he's really ticked off about this. I, I would stay clear of him for right now. He, he's really, really ticked off about this right now. And Ms. Hutchinson, was this the only instance that you are aware of where the president threw dishes? It's not. And are there other instances in the dining room that you recall where he expressed his anger? There were, there were several times throughout my tenure with the chief of staff that I was aware of him either throwing dishes or flipping the tablecloth um, to let all the contents of the table go onto the floor and likely break or go everywhere. And Ms. Hutchinson, Attorney General Barr described to the committee the president's angry reaction when he finally met with President Trump. Let's listen. And uh, I said, look, I, I uh, know that you're dissatisfied with me and I'm glad to offer my resignation. And he pounded the table very hard. Everyone sort of jumped and he said, accept it. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. I want to begin by thanking Ms. Hutchinson for her testimony today. We are all in her debt. Our nation is preserved by those who abide by their oaths to our Constitution. Our nation is preserved by those who know the fundamental difference between right and wrong. And I want all Americans to know that what Ms. Hutchinson has done today is not easy. The easy course is to hide from the spotlight, to refuse to come forward, to attempt to downplay or deny what happened. That brings me to a different topic. While our committee has seen many witnesses, including many Republicans, testify fully and forthrightly, this has not been true of every witness. And we have received evidence of one particular practice that raises significant concern. Our committee commonly asks witnesses connected to Mr. Trump's administration or campaign whether they've been contacted by any of their former colleagues or anyone else who attempted to influence or impact their testimony. Without identifying any of the individuals involved, let me show you a couple of samples of answers we received to this question. First, here's how one witness described phone calls from people interested in that witness's testimony. 
Quote, what they said to me is as long as I continue to be a team player, they know I'm on the right team. I'm doing the right thing. I'm protecting who I need to protect. You know I'll continue to stay in good graces in Trump world. And they have reminded me a couple of times that Trump does read transcripts. And just keep that in mind as I proceed through my interviews with the committee. Here's another sample in a different context. This is a call received by one of our witnesses. Quote, a person let me know you have your deposition tomorrow. He wants me to let you know he's thinking about you. He knows you're loyal and you're gonna do the right thing when you go in for your deposition. I think most Americans know that attempting to influence witnesses to testify untruthfully presents very serious concerns. We will be discussing these issues as a committee, carefully considering our next steps. Mr. Chairman, thank you. I yield back. Gentlewoman yields back. Pursuant to the order of the committee of today, the chair declares the committee in recess. So another day of extraordinary testimony, shocking testimony, amazing testimony. And I think, you know, another bombshell at the very end where Liz Cheney was basically pointing out that numerous witnesses have had somebody reaching out to them, obviously on behalf of Donald Trump, saying, you know, if you basically if you say the right thing, you'll be good with Trump world and you don't want Trump pissed off at you and stuff like that. Uh, that's called witness tampering. And it's a felony. <laughs> and I, you know, Liz Cheney said it, it presents very serious concerns. Yes, like prison. The thing that shocked me the most was that the Secret Service and the FBI came, or law enforcement agencies, I'd have to go back and read the transcript to get exactly who it was, essentially conveyed to the White House that the Proud Boys and uh, Three Percenters and whatnot that these guys down at the Washington Monument were armed and that there were people who were armed at the Ellipse where Trump was going to give his speech. This was 10 o'clock in the morning before his speech started. And they wanted to set up magnetometers because they knew magnetometers are those things that you walk through when you go into the airport, you know, the airport security, they measure if, you, if you're carrying metal. And they wanted to set up magnetometers to, uh, to try to take out the guns because there were, there were long rifles, there were pistols, there were AR-15s, there were knives, there were spears uh, that, were, that had been identified. And when they said to Trump, we're, we're going to put up magnetometers and screen these people, just like you know, airport security, before they go in, Trump said, no, they're not here to hurt me. In other words, he knew that they were armed. He knew that they were armed with the intent to commit violence. And he knew that the violence was not going to be directed at him. So that, for me, that was uh, probably the biggest bombshell of the morning. Actually, there was a series of them, was when Trump, after his speech, well, first of all, during his speech, Cassie Hutchinson said that uh, she was behind the stage. She couldn't hear what was being said. If you've ever been backstage during a concert or something, you know, you know what she's talking about. And she got a call from Kevin McCarthy over at the Capitol, who had apparently just heard that Trump had said, we're going to march on the Capitol. And McCarthy was like, you told me you're not going to march on the Capitol. What the hell's going on? This, you know, you lied to me. 
And she's like, no, we're not going to march to the Capitol. So McCarthy gets off the phone. So then they get in the Beast, which is the presidential limousine. This is, you know, giant presidential bulletproof car. And Trump says, take me to the Capitol. Now, he knows that there are armed people heading to the Capitol. There's a noose, a gallows outside to hang the vice president. There are people there with weapons searching for the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi. Trump knows all this. And he says, take me to the Capitol. I'm assuming, uh, with all the baggage that that word carries, but I'm assuming that in that moment, he was thinking that this was going to be his Mussolini moment. You will recall... In 1919, for those of you who don't know the history of Mussolini and his, his uh, movement in Italy, in 1919, uh, Mussolini was this, you know, obscure local politician who had a militia, his own version of the Proud Boys. So what Mussolini did was he had his 300 black shirts, they called them, his Proud Boys. He had his 300 black shirts. They, over the course of the next three years, grew to 20,000. He built a militia. And on October 31st, 1922, the last day of October, 1922, Mussolini marched into Rome. They'd already seized several small cities. And they marched into Rome and confronted the king. Italy had a king at the time. And uh, it confronted the king and said, basically, suspend parliament and make me the prime minister or we will attack you. We will attack the city of Rome, and we will attack the presidential palace. And the king said, okay, you're prime minister. And that's how Mussolini became prime minister. And so my assumption is that Donald Trump was thinking, if I can make it to the Capitol, as they're hanging Mike Pence and killing Speaker Pelosi, and the count, the electoral count has been thrown into a disarray, I will stand up on the speaker's platform and declare martial law and become president for life. Now, as I said, this is my assumption. I don't know what other assumption you can draw from it, though. So anyhow, let's get some of your thoughts on this. Paul in Ambler, Pennsylvania. Hey, Paul, your thoughts. Yeah, I concur with your analysis and whether or not he carries through with the execution of Pence and, and Pelosi and, and other leaders of the uh, elected government and legislature, it's quite clear that the plan was to disrupt the, at this point, ceremonial conclusion to the transfer of power and to insinuate himself into it and declare himself the president, whether or not they could carry out these other things. I think that his presence at the at the rally and his attack on his security man, lunging at the wheel, trying to get to where he was supposed to be at the appointed time, it's quite clear that he was going to announce, I'm the winner. Yeah. I'm the president. Why else would he I'm go? I'm the elected one. Right, exactly. Exactly. Well, you know, if, you're fr if, you, if you have frustration and anger because you don't get what you want, well, what is it that he wanted? 
he wanted to go and march with his people. He just announced it. Well, he wanted and he wanted to become president for life. I mean, there's no there's no there's not even a remote well, possibility, Paul, yeah, I mean, that he thought he was going to go there and yeah. say, oh, yeah, D Joe Biden's the president now. Let's all applaud. Not a chance. No, 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 of course not. He was there to declare himself the president of the United States, whether in perpetuity or until as long as, you know, his mortal, uh, you know, Coil. His mortal existence, <laughs> yes. the immortal, yeah. As long as he was walking the earth with us and hasn't needed meet his maker yet, yeah. Just but like the, Mussolini. The only reason for him to be there is to is to have a coup. And what you do in a coup is you have to blind, you have to blind all the opposition. And if you disrupt the capital, you have this mob scene there. You actually made a good point about declaring martial law. You have absolute chaos going on, and in order to restore it, who else but our fearless leader can restore order, yeah. law and order. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I don't think there's anything else you conclude. This was a coup. They were marching on the Capitol to disrupt the final transition uh, of power, the orderly transition, the constitutional transition, and to replace it with Donald Trump's diktat. I'm the president. I am the uh, one that's going to bring back law and order. Look at this mob. And, you know, he would have hung all those guys out to dry. If they think they're having a hard time now being in prison, can you imagine what he would have done to them just to bolster how dangerous the situation was and how brave he was yeah. to get up there and yeah. reach through law and order? Yeah. A, a few other things that were pretty astonishing. He was very pissed off because the crowd wasn't as big as he wanted. <laughs> He's such it's an eager man. I, ha I, have to, I have to tell you, I'm from the Philadelphia area, and he, you know, he was building these casinos of his back in '91, and we had a big uh, stock brokerage who was evaluating the, the junk bonds he was floating to pay for the construction, and the man who was in charge of, you know, municipal these kind of municipal bonds and junk bonds at the time at this stock firm came out and said that these are all going to go belly up. By the time the temperature dips below 70 degrees on the boardwalk of Atlantic City, no one will go to a casino. Right. Well, sure enough, they went bankrupt. That man was attacked by Trump, and he was fired from his job. He was sued by Trump. Eventually, they had uh, determination by the SEC and the New York Stock Exchange, which vindicated the man, but Trump you know, destroyed the guy's career. Right. Thank you very much for the call. Good to hear from you. So here we've got Donald Trump knowing that the people at the rally were armed, telling his people not to use magnetometers, the devices that they use at airports to catch people who are carrying weapons, not to use those because he said, they're not coming to hurt me. Although he stood behind bulletproof glass and Mo Brooks, Mo Brooks standing next to him was wearing a bulletproof vest. And then he tries to get back to the Capitol so that he can proclaim himself president for life, in my opinion. I mean, this, is just, this is a damning story, just a damning story. I leave the rest of the analysis to my colleagues who follow me here, but wow, what a story. We'll continue the conversation about this tomorrow. Same time, same place, the same bat channel, all that sort of thing. In the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. Although there's a certain amount of spectacle going on right here. This is not how democracy is supposed to work. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. Have a great afternoon.
You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. Thank you.